traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. As people, we tend to categorize things, arrange them into neat little boxes, so we can say definitively what that thing is. Inevitably, we do this with our entertainment too. Action, adventure, romance, horror. And when a film or television show has a foot in a couple of these genres, then we mash up those titles into clumsy hybrids. But with science fiction and fantasy, the two of them together like that just rolls off the tongue quite nicely. So what is science fiction and what is fantasy? In a moment Rod Serling is going to give you his take on that. But when tonight's episode opens, there isn't a hint of either of those things. Just an idyllic summer's day, kids playing baseball, with a grandfatherly figure. Come on, let's play ball. What, where? All right, never mind. Let's do something else. How about Spaceman? Well, all those who wish to play Spaceman, raise their hands. All right. And this time, Jenny, you're the Martian. Nah. Oh, it's your turn. I know, but gee, Ben, I can't turn into things the way you can. Oh, come on, Ben. Don't be a dirty guy. Ben, if only you had listened. Now, in this opening scene, we see that the old man, Ben, seems to favour Jenny over the group of boys that they're playing with. And this relationship between those two in particular is something that we'll talk about throughout the episode. But I think at this point, Ben is playfully balancing things out in the group. You know, Jenny is the only girl, and the boys scoff at her either being the monster or the captain in their game of rocket ship. So as the boys dismiss her, Ben, as the kind of authority figure, will find ways of including her or giving her roles to balance that out. But we find that there's more than meets the eye with old Ben, because he transforms himself into a hideous space monster who the kids then boing to death with their ray guns. So it seems so far that the episode is firmly within the realms of science fiction. But let's see how that changes in tonight's episode when we hunt for the fugitive. It's been said that science fiction and fantasy are two different things. Science fiction, the improbable made possible. Fantasy, the impossible made probable. What would you have if you put these two different things together? Well, you'd have an old man named Ben who knows a lot of tricks most people don't know, and a little girl named Jenny who loves him, and a journey into the heart of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on March 9th, 1962, written by Charles Beaumont and directed by Richard L. Bear. Now, at this point, 
Charles Beaumont and Richard Elbert are well known to us and Richard Elbert even directed the last episode, so I won't recap their bios. But what I will talk about is our opening narration begins with a whip pan and cut to sailing that isn't entirely seamless but I love that he's sitting there in the park on the bench out in the sun and also he gives this beautifully succinct description of what science fiction and fantasy are. Science fiction the improbable made possible and fantasy the impossible made probable. So he's very clear in what this episode is setting out to do melding science fiction and fantasy into one story. Now old Ben is a shapeshifter, but shapeshifters do appear in both science fiction and fantasy stories. So at this point we don't know if his powers come from science or magic, but we will learn down the line that he is in fact an alien. So here is our science fiction element, and we'll keep an eye on where the fantasy comes into it as we go along. But if we are in this frame of mind, in this modern fairy tale way of thinking, then I guess to me who does find America to be quite a magical place anyway, the opening scene after the narration does set the scene quite nicely. And it's one of those uniquely American looking streets with those beautiful stoops that come down onto the sidewalk. And I'd take that over a castle any day. So as Ben's stunt double roller skates into the scene with Jenny on his back, they stop on one of those stoops and have a little conversation, at the end of which Jenny kisses Ben on the cheek and he responds as so. Ah, say I'm weary, say I'm sad. Say that health and wealth have missed me. Say that I am growing old, but add, Jenny kissed me. What's that? Earth poetry. Ah, you made it up, but I like it. And so do I. All right, up we go. So this poem that old Ben recites is half of a poem that is actually called Jenny Kissed Me, written by James Henry Lee Hunt in 1838. And it goes like this. Jenny kissed me when we met, jumping from the chair she sat in. Time, you thief, who love to get, sweets into your list, put that in. Say I'm weary, say I'm sad, say that health and wealth have missed me, say I'm growing old but add, Jenny kiss me. So I've read a little bit about this online and the different interpretations people have of it, and I don't know if the writer is basing this on an actual person, but there seems to be a general consensus that it is a romantic poem. Now I'm no poetry scholar, but I think the beauty of the poem is how it conveys the joy of that moment in eight very short lines. You get the depth of the writer's joy and feeling for Jenny without the detail of who she actually is. So it could be a lover, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. It could be about that joy that a grandparent takes in their grandchild. Jenny jumps up enthusiastically and kisses the writer. Children do have this boundless energy and may jump up to kiss a grandparent when they meet. The writer is growing old, but at least they have that. But did it happen this morning? Did it happen last week? Did it happen 50 years ago? We don't know the answer to that. It's all about how important those moments are in our memory. 
but I do think it's quite a lovely little poem. Now as we go on we will discuss an aspect of this episode that time has unfortunately not been kind to. But the use of that poem in and of itself I think is okay, but perhaps we'll evaluate the episode as a whole later on. So young Jenny has a leg brace, and the big question is, if Ben has all these powers, why doesn't he just cure whatever ailment it is that has caused her to wear it? Ben? Yes? Tell me something. What is it, little monkey? You know how to do so many things. How come you don't make my leg well? Well, because then I wouldn't have the fun of carrying you. And you'd get yourself a young boyfriend. I'm serious. You could do it, couldn't you? Well, perhaps, but... Oh, Jenny, I mustn't do it. Old Ben is played by an actor called James Patrick Francis O'Malley. And at various times during his career, he'd either be known as Pat O'Malley or J. Pat O'Malley. And he's an English actor born in 1904, so by this point he was in his late 50s. And he has the distinction of being a four-time Twilight Zone player. He was in The Chaser, then this, next in The Self-Improvement of Salvador Ross, and then finally Mr. Garrity and the Graves. Now old Ben has these shape-shifting abilities, but to some degree, so did Pat O'Malley in terms of the breadth of his career and the things he did. He was extremely prolific as an actor, and his IMDb bio lists 236 credits. But those credits don't begin until 1940, when he would have been about 36. So foreshadowing the actor he would become, in his younger days he was an extremely prolific singer in England. His recording career began in his early 20s, and he joined up with band leader Jack Hilton and his orchestra in 1930, as the principal singer, but he also had his own solo career on the side as well, and apparently he recorded over 400 popular songs during that period. Don't blame me for falling in love with you. I'm under your spell, but how can I help it? Don't blame me. Can't you see? When you do the things you do If I can't conceal The thrill that I'm feeling Don't blame me Often an actor will be a TV actor Or a film actor But Pat would do anything that was put in front of him Now I've spoken about the hard-working actors of the day But I do think there is a certain breed of British actor During this period And I guess beyond as well who, if there is a job on the table, they will take it no matter what, whether it's small, big, in film, television, it doesn't matter, they will take it. And I think this may just come from a very working class place. If jobs are in short supply, you take any work you can get, you don't turn anything down. And when he was acting, he could be quite a chameleon in a way too, and it wouldn't take much for him to just put on a hat or change some mannerisms or grow a moustache, anything to just transform himself. And this look he has here with the walrus moustache and the shock of white hair wasn't his usual look. 
Take for example his later performance in Mr. Garrity and the Graves. If you look at stills from these two episodes, you'd think that it was a different man. So Pat was in everything in those days, from Batman to Bonanza, you name it, he was in it. But this chameleon-like ability to transform went beyond just his appearance, because he made a very good living as a voice artist too, most notably in Disney movies like Robin Hood and Mary Poppins, where apparently he was the dialect coach for Dick Van Dyke. But hey, no one's perfect. So old Ben, when we meet him here, wasn't that old in terms of the life of Pat O'Malley, who lived until 1985, passing away at the age of 80, and he kept on working almost up until the end. So how is he in this? You know, I think he was an experienced and professional actor, and he's been given this sort of grandfatherly role, which would have been a piece of cake for him. And he does fine, you know, there is an aspect to this show that I will tackle later on that I don't think is in any way due to Pat O'Malley and his performance. So if this episode is part science fiction and part fantasy, it's time we meet our wicked stepmother. I told you to be back before the store's closed. Oh, it's all my fault, Mrs. Gann. Jenny told it's me. It's always your fault, ain't it? Oh, come on, Aunt Agnes. Shut up, you ungrateful little gutter snipe. After all I've done for you. After I fed you and took care of you and give you a place to sleep. Where'd you be now for one for me? Well, I'll tell you where you'd be in an orphanage, that's where. And if you don't mind your P's and Q's, that's just where you're going. Now you get inside. Mrs. Gann, don't you ever lift your hand to Jenny again. Look, you just listen to me. I have got my stomach full of you hanging around that girl, turning her against me and filling her head up with that crazy stuff. You hear me? So Jenny's aunt is clearly taking on the role of the wicked stepmother or the ugly sister type person. The person who resents Jenny being there. And she is played by Nancy Culp, who we all remember, of course, for playing Jane Hathaway in the Beverly Hillbillies. And she joins her Hillbilly co-stars Buddy Ebsen, Donna Douglas, and probably more actors who were also in The Twilight Zone. Nancy Culp was in a huge 246 episodes of The Beverly Hillbillies and a reunion movie, but she's also a very interesting lady in her own right, very intellectual, and she also dabbled in politics as well. Now, although she had been married earlier on in her life, towards the end of her life, she actually came out as a gay woman. And her performance in this, she brings, I think, a real harshness to it. And she almost plays it too well. Because if you take the other characters in it, they're clearly working in a kind of fiction. Ben's always talking in a particular way to Jenny the way an adult will sometimes speak to a young child. And later on we'll have Ben's two servants who aren't particularly naturalistic in their acting style either. But Nancy Culp really has this nastiness to her, I think, when she's shouting at Jenny. And it's more down-to-earth nasty rather than the arch-villainess type performance you'd see from a Wicked Queen, which I guess could be quite fitting for an urban fairy tale. So at about this midpoint of the show, we're introduced to two characters who are credited simply as Man 1 and Man 2, and they're played by Wesley Lau and Paul Tripp. And I'm trying to think of what role specifically in our fairy tale framework that these fit into. I can't think of anything specific, but, you know, perhaps something like 
the woodsman or, you know, these kind of in-between supporting characters. Now, the actor Paul Tripp actually got the part in this from writing to Rod Serling as a fan, and he wrote to him and said, We're so pleased to read that your show had been granted a new lease of life. This is just a rather roundabout way of asking if there would be any chance of appearing in one of your shows while I'm out there next month or so. If it is possible, I shall be very grateful for the opportunity of not only working with you again, but also for the chance to show off my wares. And so that worked and Paul Tripp got his part. So at this point we're in a situation where there are two men looking for old Ben, and in a sense, he's now cornered. And we find out a little more about his powers. The story suggests that he can probably do small tricks, but to do something like fixing Jenny's leg would need an amount of power that would be detectable by the two men who are looking for him. So it's time for Ben to come clean. Now listen, Jenny. You've been very good letting me keep my secrets. Now I'm going to tell you one of them. You see, I am not actually a resident of this world. Huh? I'm from another planet. I knew it, I knew it. Which one? Mars? No, no, you've never heard of it. But anyway, Jenny, you see, those two men are trying to catch me so they can take me back. Because of what you did? Uh-huh. And I don't want to go back. But they've located me. So the only thing I can do is find another world that I can hide in. But what happens next is that Ben knows he has to leave, so he's going to use his power to heal Jenny anyway. So while Ben cures Jenny's leg, let's meet the girl herself. Jenny was played by Susan Gordon, and in contrast to her co-star Pat O'Malley, Susan Gordon's career was quite short. Although it did seem that she was destined for the screen because she was the daughter of director Bert Gordon, and her first role was when she was eight years old in his film Attack of the Puppet People, otherwise known as Six Inches Tall. Now Bert Gordon has lots of wonderfully schlocky credits on his resume, and he actually returned to directing in 2015 with a film called Secrets of a Psychopath. Now, although the scenes appear first in the show, the scenes on the baseball field were filmed last, and Susan Gordon said in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, the last days of shooting were done on a baseball field. It was during those outdoor scenes that I was taken ill. Perhaps it was a touch of sunstroke. And in the middle of the last scene of that day, I could barely make it through my lines without fainting. When the director yelled, cut, I walked off the set and collapsed. They carried me off the set on a stretcher as Rod Sailing walked in to do his bit. I came that close to meeting Mr. Sailing. And she goes on to say, One amusing anecdote, well, amusing to me anyway, happened during the scene with the mouse. When I held a mouse inside my shirt to hide it from my aunt, the mouse got loose inside my shirt and ran around in there, tickling me silly before I could catch it. Obviously the scene had to be reshot. And she did also say in a quote listed in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia, of all the television shows and movies I did, this was one of my favourite roles, because I got to play a twin, and I got to run off with a prince. So why Susan left acting, I don't know, but as she was so young in the Twilight Zone, 
I did think that perhaps there was a possibility of tracking her down and speaking with her on the show, but I'm sad to say that she passed away in 2011. Now I'm going to bring this one to a conclusion quite quickly, because when I say that there's not much trivia for this one, I really mean that there's not much trivia. And under those circumstances, unless there's some other aspect to it, then I just end up recounting the story to you, which is not something that I think we really want to do. But after a bit of business with the two men looking for Ben, incapacitate Jenny using their alien devices, old Ben has to come back to heal her. And then we find out the real story. Ben! I know. They're here. Your Majesty. All right, all right. It's a terrible thing to do. Hurting a little girl. We didn't want to hurt her, Your Majesty. It was the only way, sir. We knew you'd come back to make her well again. What's going on? What's this Your Majesty stuff? Well, little monkey, I have a confession to make. You see, I'm not really a criminal, and these men really aren't policemen. They're my subjects. And I regret to say, I am what you would call the king. Ah, oh, come on. Cross my heart and hope to die. Then what were you running away for? Well, that is a little hard to explain. You see, I guess I really wasn't cut out to be a king. All that fuss and responsibility and... Oh, I don't know. After the first thousand years, it sort of got me down. So after a bit more trickery where Ben disguises himself as another Jenny, Ben and Jenny go away to Ben's planet leaving behind as some way of baffling explanation to her aunt a picture of Ben as he actually is. So quite what Jenny's aunt thought when she found Jenny missing and a picture of a strange man underneath her pillow, we will never know. Although there is a rare appearance by Rod Sailing at the end of the episode, so hopefully he stuck around to explain to Auntie Agnes that she shouldn't worry because the old man who had been hanging around Jenny hasn't actually kidnapped her, but it's actually a much younger looking handsome man who has kidnapped her and will eventually marry her, hopefully when she turns 18, even though he's actually thousands of years old. You know, it's all very confusing, but don't worry, here's a picture of the guy. As I've said before, I rarely look at reviews online before I complete an episode. Sometimes I do if there's no trivia, and I'm looking for a little avenue to wander down that I might have missed. But for the most part, I like my own thoughts to be untainted. But with The Fugitive, I did take a little look around. Now, I don't think it tops anyone's best of Twilight Zone lists, and it can be quite divisive, because on the one hand, some will find it to be quite charming, and the combination of science fiction and fantasy clearly works for them as it's intended to. And I think maybe for the first 10 minutes I might be on board with that because as I mentioned earlier, even though I've spent a lot of time in the US, it does hold a certain magic for me anyway. So transplanting these fairy tale archetypes into an early 60s America does hold some potential. But as the episode wears on, I think the novelty wears off because the story just kind of turns into nothing really. Now the other reason I checked out a couple of reviews was to try and find the answer to a question that I had unfortunately had in my head. And that question was, 
Is it just me? We're in an interesting time at the moment where quite often vintage entertainment will be held up to scrutiny and re-evaluated against modern sensibilities. Now not a month will go by without a blog post from somewhere where a person will be holding up some old piece of entertainment and saying how offensive it is now or how it wouldn't be done today. Now these re-evaluations will sometimes be quite valuable. I think it's important to measure where we are sometimes by looking at where we were. But the kind of posts you see will run the gamut from interesting observations about society at that time to purposely quite incendiary clickbait. You know, that's the kind of world we live in, unfortunately. Here on the Twilight Zone podcast, I will point out certain things every now and again like how the show would often have women in the kind of shrewish wife role. So even I do a certain amount of viewing it through a modern lens and seeing how it holds up. Because if we're looking at an episode and I heap praise on it for being ahead of its time and still relevant to the modern world, then I think it's only fair to examine where it doesn't hold up as much. And this is always done with love, but it's all about balance, and everyone's lines on that kind of thing are different. Now, The Fugitive doesn't come into this because of how progressive it is or isn't, but there is an aspect to it that some find to be a little uncomfortable now. As I said before, as episodes go, there is virtually nothing in the way of trivia, and the entries from our main Twilight Zone commentators completely omit one detail, and this is apart from Douglas Brody in Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, where he writes this, A gentle whimsical episode, this Cinderella story, adds a disturbing subtext to what initially seems easygoing enough. Then he does his analysis of the episode, but he finishes up with, However, this turn of events raises a disquieting issue. If this is a love story, then haven't a 12-year-old girl and an 80-year-old man just become a couple? Yes, but we must recall that Ben is not actually the way he appears on Earth. Still, that wouldn't make any difference to Jenny. She loves what he is inside. In Sailing's epilogue, the host shows us a photo of what Ben really looks like, a handsome teenage boy. Still, we note that Sailing shares this happy news while he sits on the bed Jenny and Ben have shared throughout. While on a bed, Ben often embraced, tickled or petted her. When the two weren't on a bed, Jenny was often seated on Ben's lap, with her arms around him as they discussed their devotion. When they walked together, he openly flirted with Jenny, referring to her as his best girl and only true love, and Jenny considered Ben her boyfriend. I'm not sure it was quite that way, but I I see where he's getting at. That he's actually young perhaps calms any awkward feelings. Then again, we should note that if we logically follow the progression the story outlines for us, a 19-year-old boy will now marry a 12-year-old girl. So this is the elephant in the room, if you will. So let's preface this part of our discussion with, obviously Charles Beaumont has written this innocently, with good intent, and is in no way trying to write a story with these uncomfortable undertones to it. And I'm 100% sure he was just writing what he thought was a pleasant little sci-fi fairy tale. And I'll also say that if you can put aside this aspect of it and enjoy it on the terms that Charles Beaumont wrote it, 
then that's great too. But looking around, it's not just myself and Douglas Brody who unfortunately wince a little at some of the detail that's in this story. Now, I don't like to be cynical in the Twilight Zone podcast. I don't like to be negative. I actually think that, you know, often each episode has the potential to be someone's favourite episode. So I don't like to come down too hard on things too much. But, you know, I've got to be honest with how I feel about things. So so let's boil it down to that cynical kind of view of the fugitives then. Basically, it's about an old man who hangs around with children, specifically a little girl who he cracks jokes with about being her boyfriend, and he hangs around in her bedroom a lot. He climbs inside her shirt while he's disguised as a mouse, and the police are looking for him for things that he's done in his past. And in the end, while it turns out his true form looks younger than his current one, he's actually hundreds of years old, a lot older than he appears. So he takes a little girl to space, and in the end, marries her. Now clearly Charles Beaumont would never write something that was purposely creepy in this way, and Rod Serling certainly wouldn't have broadcast something that was that creepy, so I think we really have to accept that time has put unfortunate connotations on something that was made to be sweet and whimsical. Because it's not just Beaumont and Serling, there's also Buck Houghton as the director Richard Bear. The script would have went through all of their hands, so surely if they'd have thought there was something untoward with it, they would have spoken up. But we now live in an age where the grooming of children and worse is spoken about more, and that's not to say that these terrible things didn't happen in the 50s and 60s. Of course they did. They most definitely did. But now it's just in the media more, and it's certainly investigated more. It's more a part of the public consciousness, and I think if we saw a neighbour behaving towards a child in the way that old Ben does, then it would certainly give us pause for thought. And I don't really like thinking about an episode of The Twilight Zone in this way, because it is a bit cynical, and that's not how I generally am with the show. But if we think back to One for the Angels with Lou Buckman, which had a friendship between an elderly man and a young girl in it, I never really got this uncomfortable vibe from that episode. I kind of just accepted Lou as this surrogate grandfather figure in the neighbourhood where he lived. You know, this lonely old man who's quite simple in his ways anyway and just enjoys a more wholesome relationship with the neighbourhood children. So I do think there is this uncomfortable aspect to it from the choices they made in the episode with the dialogue and the conclusion. And I think it probably would have been quite easy to fix as well, just to tweak some things to take this element away. Now, I think clearly in the picture, the the picture of the male is a, a sort of late teens male. It's not like he's some 30-year-old guy or something. Whether the fact that he's actually hundreds of years old kind of cancels that out, I guess, you know, we all have our own thoughts on that. You could say that because he lives for thousands of years old, in their terms, he himself is just a teenager. But still, I think we're kind of trying to cut the episode more slack than maybe it deserves. But it would probably have been quite easy to fix by just having Ben turn out to be maybe the son of a king, so he was a prince himself, and he just ran away from home or something, 
and in his true form, he was also a 12-year-old boy like Jenny. You know, we still would have had a bit of strangeness with old Ben there, but if it turned out that he was just a kid as well, then maybe we, we could have went with that a bit more. So if this is a time thing, then surely if this episode was remade in maybe the past 10 to 20 years, it would be different, right? Well, interestingly, no. Because I listened to the Twilight Zone radio episode of this one to see whether they made any tweaks to the fugitive, like maybe having Ben turn out to be a child prince or something. And it turns out the only real tweak that was made is that instead of the boy telling Ben not to be a dirty guy at the beginning, he tells Ben to be a good guy. So as well as not changing anything, there's even another line or two in it that when taken out of context are a bit wince-inducing too. Ben? Ben, are you in there? Come in! Hi, Ben. Why? Who's that? It must be my favorite princess. Ben, will you help me? What's the matter? Howie and the boys are in the park playing softball and... Well, why aren't you out there with them? You know they don't like girls on their team, but if I bring somebody else to play... Hmm, now who might that be? You, Ben. You're so much fun and... Uh, I don't know. I... <clears throat> I'm getting pretty old, you know. No, you're not. They like you. Uh, sometimes they don't like the things I do. So I guess it is possible that not everyone will see this uncomfortable aspect in the episode. And that's great because, like I said, I don't think it was ever intended, and this is not something to laugh at or be made fun of. But if we put it to one side and just look at the quality of the episode itself, I'd have to say that while I admire Charles Beaumont trying to do something a bit different and creating a modern urban science fiction fairy tale, I don't think it really works for me that the cast all do fine with what they have, but I don't think there's anything really for me to latch onto here. You know, the story is quite simplistic, which of course it probably should be. It's a fairy tale, but it just doesn't really interest me in any of the ways that the Twilight Zone usually does. And the uncomfortable undertones are, unfortunately, the nail in the coffin. So I have to file this one under well-intentioned failure with some unanticipated undertones in the Twilight Zone. Mrs. Gann will be in for a big surprise when she finds this under Jenny's pillow. Because Mrs. Gann has more temper than imagination. She'll never dream that this is a picture of old Ben as he really looks. And it will never occur to her that eventually her niece will grow up to be an honest-to-goodness queen. Somewhere in the Twilight Zone. So there we go, that was The Fugitive. You know, of all the Twilight Zones, that was the one I've most dreaded doing from day one. For this very reason, and I don't really like getting into that kind of stuff because... Some people will become quite angry that we look at this episode in that way, but, you know, I, I think it's quite inescapable. And like I said, there's no intent there, but time has just changed around it. And what can you do? Anyway, I hope everyone's okay with that one. But okay, let's hear some listener feedback in Submitted for your approval.
Now, first of all, I just want to say thank you for the outpouring of support that people have sent to me in terms of emails, tweets, after that email that I read out in the last episode. Now, I'm apart from a couple of lines in some of these emails uh, that are kind of integral to the whole thing, um, I won't read them all out because I kind of just want to move past that, you know what I mean? That's not what we're about here, the, the true friends of the show, the fans of the Twilight Zone. So, you know, I'm going to leave that one to ancient history, but I do appreciate everyone writing in and your good thoughts and your insightful comments that show that I wasn't quite alone on how I felt about that one. So thank you so much. Now, I've had an email from a Twilight Zone superfan called Edward, and he says, Tom, I heard Nicholas Parisi on a show in the US called Coast to Coast. After his appearance, I searched for his info online, and this led me to his appearance on your podcast. Like most aspects of the Twilight Zone, I've been devouring your podcasts. Well, thank you, man. He says, I'm very knowledgeable about the Twilight Zone and have enjoyed your take on the episodes. And he also gives a link to some of his Twilight Zone themed art that's at rodsailing.com. And he says, I have amassed a collection of more than 800 Twilight Zone star autographs and more than 30 of my autographs are on my wood-burned Twilight Zone themed portraits. Since the most recent episode I heard was the last rites of Jeff Metalbank, I have an insight about James Best. In 2012, I obtained James Best's home address and decided to make a couple of portraits of him and then ship them to him for his autograph. He cashed the $200 check that I'd sent him, so I thought it would only be a few days or weeks to get my signed items back. As weeks turned into months, I got worried, so I sent follow-up emails to James asking if he'd already shipped my items, but never got a reply. For six or seven months, I had a very sour impression of James Best, who would cash the check and then keep all of my stuff. After some diligent sleuthing, I was able to locate James's wife, Dorothy's email. I sent her a message asking about my package, and she responded. Oh my goodness, that is the box that's been sitting in our dining room. I am so sorry. I will get James to take care of it right away. A week later, I got all of my items back from James as well as many freebies to make it up to me. He gave me free books, CDs, and other fantastic items. I corresponded with him a couple of times after that. Interestingly, James is a cousin of the Everly Brothers, and he was adopted by Armin Best and Essa Myrtle, which has an interesting tie to Jeff Myrtlebank. Very interesting. I have had many great interactions with some of the Twilight Zone stars that I can share. One example is that Paul Comey's wife told me that the autograph of Paul on my portrait was the last autograph that he would ever give. She explained that my portrait was so special that she waited for more than a month for a moment of lucidity to get him to sign it for me. I have many amazing things like this. I have a recorded conversation with Gloria Paul from And When the Sky Was Opened and also a signed script from her when the episode was called Disappearing Act. In my collection, I have a couple of screen-used Twilight Zone props like the meat fork used in Shadowplay at seven minutes into the show. Recall the oven is shown again later when Dennis Weaver tells the DA to go home and check the oven. I also have the telephone that is on the table of the bunker in One More Paul Bearer. Wow, Ed, that sounds fantastic. A true Twilight Zone superfan, I think. So thank you so much for writing in. 
I've had an email from good friend of the show Jack and he says Hi Tom, I drove in through the snowy highways of Halifax, Nova Scotia listening to one of my favourite podcasts, the Twilight Zone podcast. You do such a bang up job that you constantly make me rethink my own hosting duties of my own podcasts. Your dedication and trivia never cease to make me look at the series from a different point of view. Such is the case with To Save Man. I, like many I suppose, enjoyed the show when it first came out, but wondered if it was a strictly one no twist ending that everyone likes to mention today. In fact, I've always felt a certain distaste that the episode is often counted as some of the top 10 best Twilight Zone episodes when I think there are so many more that delve into the real characterization and strong development of the plot. However, you got me again. I was fascinated with the thought when you mentioned that the Damon Knight original story actually contradicts Sailing's inclusive nature of the universe. You're right, but I think that the skeptics of To Serve Man are far different from those in the monsters are due on Maple Street and so on. The code-breaking protagonists aren't acting irrationally, but rather they want to be convinced of the truth. Sailing seems to have a very strong belief in two elements of the human soul, the deep trust in the intuitive nature of universality of the human spirit and rational analysis. Sailing's characters take on their emotional responses and dissect them on the slab before deciding if their actions are correct. It's only when that emotional response ignores reason that they fail. Consider how, in time enough at last, Henry Bemis complains about the fairness of the universe when he won't balance his need for solitude with the necessity of being alive in the world, a problem I have myself, or in a game of pool when Jesse Cardiff puts his ego in front of his realisation that loving pool has taken over every other aspect of his life. Rod saw this dichotomy in himself, as well in his need to be loved in Hollywood with his desire to be a quiet retiring family man in Binghamton. Your friend in podcasting, Jack. Well, thank you, Jack. You know, To Save Man was one that I really looked forward to people getting in touch with me about because, like I've always said, I'm, I'm no uh, Twilight Zone kind of expert. I, this is more of a journey than me sharing my knowledge and sometimes I will come up with to an episode and I will maybe think of one interpretation of it or don't really come up with an interpretation at all. So getting this kind of feedback from friends of the show like you is always great too. Thank you, Jack. Okay, long-time friend of the show, Stephen, writes in and he says, Your next episode is The Fugitive. In Metal Bank you talked about racism because other people brought it up. Well, in The Fugitive... I've heard people insert something even more sensitive, paedophilia. It's not as crazy as it sounds. First old Ben is obsessively attentive to the little girl Jenny. In fact, it looks like old Ben mostly hangs out with all the young children in the neighbourhood. Jenny's unkind aunt actually tells old Ben she's suspicious of his interest in Jenny and threatens to call the police. In the twist ending, we see that old Ben is really a handsome young adult man, that he is a king, and in the outro, Serling tells us that Jenny becomes his queen. Of course, we assume that Jenny becomes queen when she's an adult, but still, it's rather odd. Is this a Twilight Zone remake of a classic fairy tale with elements of Cinderella, Frog Prince and Sleeping Beauty, 
as an old man, old Ben is sort of like a frog prince, while Jenny, being a poor girl with a physical ailment, is like Cinderella of the Ashes, with her aunt as a stand-in for the wicked stepmother. When old Ben cures Jenny, he's the prince who brings Sleeping Beauty back to life, with the magical kiss of true love. I haven't got a problem with, say, a 60-year-old man marrying a 20-year-old woman, but I have to admit the idea of a 60-year-old man marrying a 20-year-old woman he has played with since she was a little girl has a big ick factor for me. I thought the circumstances of Woody Allen and Sun Yi were pretty icky too. The Fugitive is a conundrum for me. I want to say it is impossible that Sailing intended to hint at any kind of child abuse in his fairy tale, but you can't ignore the physically and emotionally abusive aunt, nor the aunt's distrust of old Ben's intentions. When it comes down to it, old Ben did in fact abduct Jenny when he took her to his planet. Also, contrary to popular belief, child abuse was at least as common in the 50s and 60s as it is today. Perhaps more so. There weren't as many arrests for it and it wasn't covered in the news media as much, but it was happening. The good old days were not quite as good as we think. I'm trying to put myself in your position. If I were the host of a Twilight Zone podcast, would I dare to discuss the child abuse overtones of the fugitive at the risk of alienating listeners and making some of them suspect I've got a dirty mind? Or to play it safe, would I only discuss the fairy tale aspects of the episode? I'm looking forward to hearing your take on it, as well as what your TZ reference books say about it. Now that I think about it, in some ways this might be the most confusing TZ episode for me. Regards and happy holidays, Stephen. Well, thank you, Stephen, and happy holidays to you too. Um, as you can see, the TZ reference books didn't want to touch this one with a 100-foot pole, apart from uh, Douglas Brody, who, who kind of stepped up to it. As far as being in my position, you know, like I said, it, it was a tricky one because I think some people might be angry at the suggestion of trying to... I mean, we've seen last episode someone threw their toys out of their pram about something, you know, being put on an episode in a way, well, the way they saw it. Um, and this, I suppose, is, is quite similar, but I think it is just a time thing. And as far as how to present it, I I do genuinely believe in my audience that we have, you know, intelligent people who can reason these things out. So, I, you know, I thought I'd be okay to bring it up, basically. As for how to bring it up, to be honest, I did I did contemplate reading your letter and then blaming it on you and saying that I'd never thought of it before you mentioned it, but I thought that might be a bit cruel. But thank you, Stephen. appreciate you writing in. Okay, a nice short one from a new friend of the show, Brent, and he says, Hi, Tom, new fan of the podcast here. I've enjoyed every episode to which I've listened so far. Your analysis of To Save Man was generally very good as usual, but I do have one small point of argument. You said that the episode breaks with Rod Sailing's usual practice of including a moral point by just telling a straight-ahead story wherein the human race is right to distrust the outsiders. Here's where I disagree. I believe that there is a morality lesson inside Sailing's take on this story, that we, people generally, are well advised to distrust not the other necessarily, but the promise of a quick and simple solution to global problems. Hope that makes sense. Anyway, thanks for doing the show. Can't wait to hear more. Take care, Brent. Well, thank you, Brent. That's a pretty great point, actually. You know, like I said, I don't have all the answers, so when someone can 
bring something to it like that and put it so well. That's brilliant. So thanks so much for writing in. Okay, an extremely good friend of the show, Joel Fishbane, has written in and he says, Hi Tom, hope this email finds you well and full of holiday cheer. I wanted to pass along some thoughts I had about To Serve Man. While it's never been one of my favourites, there's some interesting social dimensions to the story that get overlooked because of the story's famed twist ending. Much of the action of the story, both the episode and the original short story, is based around the question of whether humanity should trust the Canamites. The question comes from a basic human tendency to mistrust anyone who does things for altruistic reasons. Obviously this is a generalisation, but most of us would be suspicious if somebody suddenly showed up on our doorstep offering to do nice things and not asking for anything in return. This is of course essentially what the Canamites do. The episode sets itself up, then, as a commentary on humanity's inherently mistrustful nature, initially it also appears to suggest that self-interest may be a distinctly human trait. After all, if there is extraterrestrial life, it stands to reason there may be a race for whom altruism is as natural to them as gills are to fish. But the sting in the tail tells us that this isn't the case. Altruism is not a distinctly human trait, and self-interest may in fact be a characteristic of all life, no matter where it turns up. The episode's ending also suggests that our tendency to mistrust isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes the paranoia is real, and they actually are out to get you. In other words, the episode is a parable for the complexities of trust and suggests that there is an inherent risk in every relationship, every encounter, and every adventure. Does this mean that you shut the door on newcomers, or do you welcome that, despite the fact they may just be interested in turning you into dessert? It's a question that each of us has to answer for ourselves as we wander through the Twilight Zone. Thanks as always for the fine work, and I look forward to hearing more episodes in 2019. Cheers, Joel. Well, thank you, Joel. You know, there's not much more I can add to that. I think you've said that beautifully and and you're not the only one to send in some thoughts on what the subtext of To Save Man is. So I appreciate that. Thank you, man. Okay, a friend of the show that I mentioned a while ago who kindly sent me some of his work has written in. He says, Hi, Tom, it's Sean. I hope you're doing well. It's been a while. First off, I never got to congratulate you on your 2017 Rondo Award. I listen to quite a few podcasts, and yours is definitely among my very favourites. Well deserved, my friend. Well, thank you, man. Aside from illustrating books and graphic novels, I also teach college art classes. Every other semester, I teach an illustration class, and as a final project, I always have the students illustrate a Twilight Zone poster based on an episode I present to them. Wow, that's cool. I've shown them thought-provoking and visually stunning episodes such as Shadowplay, Monsters of You on Maple Street, Eye of the Beholder, Mirror Image, and many more. I'm always so happy to see how many students that are new to the series are completely fascinated and intrigued by sailing 60-year-old anthology series. This just reaffirms to me how timeless and innovative The Twilight Zone truly was and still is. We get into great discussions about the deeper meanings, subtext, themes, and social commentary hidden within various TZ stories. I also always tell the students that want to explore the series further 
that your finely crafted and well-researched podcast serves as a truly wonderful companion piece to each episode. Well, thank you, Sean. Not only is the series visually stunning with the beautiful, bold, graphic, surreal shadow box cinematography of George Clemens, but it was also a writer's show by truly great writers and a layered series that grows with you. As a child, I would watch The Twilight Zone for the twist endings and eerie horror and science fiction aspects, and as an adult, I still love the horror sci-fi characteristics, but now the underlying themes become more profound and resonate. I'm also grateful and touched by the thoughtfulness, intelligence and kindness that the TZ community has shown on your truly insightful and entertaining podcast. Even though the great Twilight Zone writers such as Rod Serling, George Clayton Johnson and Richard Matheson often would delve into the darker nether regions of the human psyche, they would also illustrate the best of us, often leaving the viewer with a feeling of hope through kindness and wonder. Anyway, I feel the same way about your great podcast and I just want to thank you once again for serving as such an outstanding counterpart to such an exceptional series. Thanks again, Tom, and keep up the truly magnificent work. All the best, Sean. Well, thank you so much, man, for all those kind words. And, you know, another person who uses the Twilight Zone when they're teaching, we've heard from people who do that in the past, and I I think that's fantastic. I love things like that. You know, it it truly is a a show for the ages, and, and that really illustrates that. So thank you, man. Okay, friend of the show John has written in and he says, Hi Tom, my name is John and I wanted to chime in on your December 9th episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. Thanks for sharing the correspondence between Rod Serling and Damon Knight. It's great to see how respectful Mr. Serling was to the writer and his story. Of course, this attitude comes through loud and clear in the episode, but it's especially nice to hear it from the man himself. He was such a class act. Also, I like the overdubbed voice for the Canemit. The pleasant tone of the voice doesn't match Richard Keel's appearance, and this seems to be part of the alien's deception. I think it's a brilliant part of the episode. Okay, I'm going to include this, although, you know, we're not really dwelling on this. I think he makes a great point, and he says, Finally, I want to speak about the negative email that you received. I won't be too divisive about this either. It seems that your former listener believes that if speculative fiction doesn't represent his own personal views or opinions, then all or most speculative fiction should only be written as pure escapism and nothing more. This is a dishonest stance to take. I can't imagine anyone accusing Ray Bradbury, Anne Rand or Aldous Huxley or forcing their own political or social beliefs into a story that should only be about dumb fun. Rod Serling sought to challenge his viewers with the Twilight Zone and even in an episode like To Save Man, which is basically an O. Henry story, there are still interesting ideas within it. Is it worth sacrificing a few select people for the greater benefit of humankind? This theme is not at the forefront of the story, but it's there all the same. You can watch The Twilight Zone as pure escapism, but you would be missing out on a lot. As always, thank you for the hard work and effort you put into each and every show. It's greatly appreciated. And that is from John. So thank you so much, John. I appreciate that. Thank you for those words. And you are absolutely right. Okay, so if you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com. I am getting a lot of email these days and I do need to trim things down a little bit sometimes now or 
not include some emails so I, I do apologize for that if your email doesn't get in but it's just about keeping the kind of runtime to something quite reasonable so I hope you understand. I just want to say thank you before I go for an iTunes reviewer from Aurora Horcrux and it's the first one for a while so thank you I really appreciate that thanks for doing that and if anyone would like to leave a nice glowing review on iTunes I would really appreciate that. If you want to become a supporter of the show on Patreon, then you can do that by going to patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast. And as I've said before, the people who become patrons kind of become the sponsor of an episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. And I put them on a wall on the website, that kind of thing, uh, with their dedicated episodes. So I want to welcome the following new patrons. Daniel Urutia. You are the sponsor of The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank. Stuart Bias, thank you. Your episode is King Nine Will Not Return. Harold D. Everly, your episode is To Save Man. Now, Harold wrote me a, a very kind um, email after the last episode, and he also made a donation, as well as becoming a patron, he also made a donation to my Binghamton Fund for my trip that will hopefully be happening next year, and thanks to people like Harold it's looking ever more likely that it will. So thank you, Harold. Okay, next up is Madeline Ivy Horn. What a wonderful name, Madeline Ivy Horn. And uh, thank you for becoming a patron. Your episode is Tom Elliott Reads To Save Man. Also Johnny Mack. And your episode is the David Avalone interview. So thank you so much. And then last, but by no means least, Anthony Marola and your episode is the mighty shadow play one of my favorites so thank you patrons one and all for contributing to the show okay that is enough from me it's been longer than i anticipated this episode but that's enough from me let's go over to rod serling to find out what's next and now mr serling next week an excursion into a strange and totally different dimension we'll bring you a story by richard matheson called little girl lost and this one, we guarantee, is not the kind found in a police docket or in a missing persons bureau. When this little girl is lost, we're talking about out of this world. I hope you can join us next week and find out precisely where she's gone. to be able to design tomorrow's world, we'll need more and better college facilities. Help the college of your choice.